I gave you the wrong title. The fellowship of suffering is what we're dealing with this morning, not the fellowship of sacrifice, although they are <laughs> related. If you look in your bulletin outline, the first point is that we are to identify with the suffering of Christ. If you look at verse 10 and 11 of our text, which is Philippians 3, by the way, we read one of the most disconcerting statements in the Bible. And you'll know in a minute why it's disconcerting. Paul says, <clears throat> I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. So far, so good. None of us had any problem with that. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Now the next statement. And the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Whoa. Now we're starting to have a problem. Becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11. Now we think it's very commendable of Paul to want to know Christ better and that he would anticipate the power of Jesus' resurrection. We might even say the same thing about our lives. I can say, I want to know Christ better, don't you? As a Christian, I hope you're going to say, yeah, I, that, that's my goal as well. And all of us believers have the anticipation of sharing in the power of Jesus' resurrection and the life eternal to follow. But what about this fellowship of sharing in His sufferings? No one wants to suffer. Pain is something from which we all run. If we have a headache or a muscle ache, we reach for the painkiller medicines. If the problem is more serious and can only be corrected by surgery, well, well then we go see a surgeon and we talk to him. If the pain is emotional, we seek out a counselor, hopefully a Christian counselor who uses the Bible, not psychology. And if the pain is spiritual, we attempt to draw closer to God through prayer and study of His Word, and yes, through repentance and faith. In short, we will do any and everything to either avoid pain or to alleviate it through whatever legitimate means is available to us. We don't like pain and we don't like suffering. Now there's good reason for this. Pain is not normal to the environment. Pain is part of the curse on creation because of Adam and Eve's sin. Let me read it for you. God is speaking. To the woman He said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. Genesis 3 and verse 16. So from that we can surmise that pain was not part of the original creation. It wasn't part of Adam and Eve's life. They never woke up with a stiff neck. They never had a migraine headache. They never had arthritic fingers. 
They never had a dislocated back or shoulder. They never suffered from the pain of cancer or any of the other diseases that plague our bodies in our day. No pain. No suffering. Well, it wasn't just women that received the curse of pain. The curse extends to more than pregnant women. Paul goes on in Romans 8, and here's what he says. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Listen to the words. Bondage to decay. What are we bound to? We're bound to decay. will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know, writes Paul, that the whole creation has been groaning as in, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, we Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's where we experience the pain. This is Romans 8, verse 19 through 23. Now he mentions three truths in this text. Number one, all creation is under the bondage to decay. Now we try to slow it down, we try to hinder it, but we will not win. We're all dying, we're in a state of dying, we're going to die, unless the Lord comes first. And part of the dying process is the body is aging, the cells are dying, all of the diseases and so forth that come our way are going on. Second truth, all creation is groaning. All creation. Go anywhere in the world and you'll see it. Number three, the third truth, is believers, no less than unbelievers, groan inwardly while we are in a wait state till the redemption of our bodies comes. And Paul is saying, you know, all of creation is waiting for that day for us. They're waiting for our redemption day to come so that they can stop groaning because at our redemption day comes, there'll be the restoration of all things. They'll be made new and the pain will cease. This is the reality of our cursed and sinful world. So long as you and I live here on earth, we are not exempt from these sorrows. Fine, fine. We accept this because we must. We resign ourselves to the truth that God is not going to build a wall around us to protect us from the ills of a cursed creation. Nor, nor is He going to necessarily rescue us from every painful experience that a cursed environment produces. Jesus put it this way to His disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. 
He's just telling it like it is, folks. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. Notice, he doesn't say, Take heart because I will shield you from these things. No, he says, Take heart because I have overcome the world. Our deliverance is in Christ because of Christ and not, not because of a miraculous intervention of God that isolates us from the ills of a cursed or evil world. The victory is accredited to Jesus as our champion. And the victory is not realized immediately in the here and now, but eventually in the there and then, when Christ returns with glory and great power. Until then, we wait. Till then, we bide our time. Till then, we hurt. In other words, we experience pain and sorrow just like every other sinner living in our cursed earth. This, however, <laughs> this is not the dilemma of our text. The dilemma is how to understand Paul's desire to experience what he calls the fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering, which he says he wants. You know, even a very young Christian knows something about the suffering that Christ endured in his pilgrimage to the cross. Not only crucifixion, but all the persecution, all the opposition of the authorities, all the hard hearts, all the blasphemy, all the mean-spirited things that were done to him, the betrayal of Judas, all of these things that led up to the cross. None of these things escape even the youngest student of the life of Christ. And we ask ourselves, why would anyone want to enter into the fellowship, the koinonia, of sharing in that? Paul gives us a clue in his letter to the church of Colossae where he writes this. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings or afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Colossians 1 verse 24. <laughs> Did I read that right? Did Paul just say that his suffering fills up what's still lacking in regard to Christ's suffering? Is there something lacking in Christ's suffering? Can Paul or any believer fulfill what is lacking? Can we add to Christ's suffering? Does Jesus' work need to be completed by us? Feels almost blasphemous to talk like that, doesn't it? 
Well, Paul is speaking as a member of the body of Christ carrying on the work of Christ. And you and I have to grasp the same concept. That is to say, as a believer, you are, get it now, you are the body of Christ. Jesus is still working on earth through you. He is still suffering through you. It is not that you are suffering independent of Christ. It's not that you're adding to what He did at the cross. No one can add to that work. But Jesus' body is yet attached to this sinful world. And in that attachment, all the forces of hell which oppose Him, opposed Him in His life, oppose you as the continuation of His life. Did not Jesus command us, take up your cross and follow me. And if you don't do it, you cannot be my, dis my disciple. There's a cross for you and I to bear. And that's what Paul's talking about. We see this in Paul's explanation of his suffering. Listen to how he phrases it. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He's writing to the Philippians. Who's the you? He goes on. For the sake of His body, which is the church. Paul, like Christ, is suffering sacrificially. But the sacrifice has this wonderful effect of extending the kingdom of God by bringing more people into the body of Christ, the church. Now, isn't this what Christ Himself did? Is it not similar to what Paul writes about Christ? Let me read it. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, 25-27 May I say that Paul and all believers who suffer for the sake of Christ, are continuing the work of Christ as the body, preaching the gospel, putting their reputation and in some cases their lives on the line that the predestined saints of God would actually become part of the family of God. you got to sacrifice for the church, for the brethren that are and for the brethren that shall be. Because the world hates Christ and His cross and the gospel. Have you ever thought of your suffering in these terms? I would venture to say that most of us have not. We start suffering and we say, oh, why me? Oh, God, why? We ought to be saying, why not? And Lord, use the suffering to bring glory to you and to bring people to know Christ. I say it respectively that Jesus is still suffering. He is still sacrificing. He is still gathering out of the world of people for His own name. And you're called to be part of it. You are. Wow. Just think about it. Listen again as Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 17. 
Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If, if indeed we share koinonia in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Glory follows suffering. We are the bride of Christ, so we are connected to everything that Christ experienced. How wonderful that He would bring us into that and allow us to be partakers in fellowship with Him in all aspects of His life. Now our problem sometimes as Christians is, I, I like the eternal life part. <laughs> I like the going to heaven part. I don't know about that suffering part. Well, the glory comes after the suffering. Same way with Christ. Now, what does it mean? Let's look at the second point then, the fellowship of suffering. Just because Jesus has ascended to glory and we remain here on earth does not mean that the suffering we endure in His name is something we endure alone. Keep in mind, in all of this, the people of God being the body of Christ with Jesus as the head. Let me read it for you. He is the head of the body, the church, I'm reading. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Colossians 1, 18-20. And then he says in Chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 10. You have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You ask, well, why keep bringing up the fact that believers are the body of Christ? Because a body without a head is a corpse. It is dead. It has no life and can do nothing. But with the head intact and functioning, a body has life and vitality and empowerment. It's the same in the spiritual dimension. Christ is the head of His body, the church, you and me. If we were alone, if we had no head, we would be dead. But we're not alone. There's no decapitation. What happens to us happens to Christ. When Paul, as Saul, was killing Christians, Jesus had long time ascended into glory after his resurrection, but he confronted Saul on the Damascus road and he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Acts 9 verse 4. Wait a minute. Christ is in glory. He's ascended back into heaven, and yet he says to Saul, you know, you're persecuting me. Who's the me? It's all those believers who comprise the body of Christ that Saul was hauling off to prison and eventually to execution. And he was on the Damascus road to go to Damascus to arrest Christians there, take them back to Jerusalem, try them and execute them. So what I'm saying here is what happens to the church happens to Christ. We're the body. He's the head. 
persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. God takes this very personally. And as believers, we not only accept this, but we consider it a privilege and a badge of identification to so suffer with Jesus. And if we do not appreciate this form of fellowship, koinonia, it's likely that we have a jaded view of what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus. What did you think it was going to be? A bed of roses? I know the health, wealth, and happy guys out there are preaching that gospel, which is no gospel. The history of the church is strewn with the martyrs of the faith wasn't a happy road for them. It's not a happy road for us. And I warn you, caution you, don't transpose what we have here in America as Christians on the rest of the world and think that what we have in America is what the rest of the world of Christians is experiencing. The fellowship of suffering is a unique connection to Christ that the world has no clue. They do not appreciate the thought and they do not understand the concept. But we do. Or do we? I think it's sometimes almost ludicrous for Christians in America to speak of suffering for Christ. And yet I know that we are called to it, the same as those believers enduring persecution in non-Christian cultures. We at least have the shadow of yesteryear upon us. We have the principles of the founding fathers. We have the influence of the Puritan thought and the Baptist concept of freedom of religion. The ghost of Christian teaching haunts this land if it is but a dying spirit. And so our lot is less horrendous than that of our brethren in other lands, but it's here. We still suffer as Christians. The hostility is there and it is on the rise. And it is becoming more bold, more in your face from the public arena in this country. Paul writes, That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10. He's talking about Christ being in those things. The insults and the mockery of the world that was leveled at Christ, Paul experienced as well, and so do we. Think of it. Weakness, hardship, difficulty, persecution. We're not exempt from these things. Not now, not ever. It is one identification mark that there is real connection between us and Christ. Paul puts it this way, in fact, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. 
will be persecuted? Did we read that right? Will be? Yes, it is certain. And there are no exceptions. Say, so, well, I don't know. I don't necessarily feel persecuted. Well, let me suggest two hindrances to why people don't experience the fellowship of suffering with Christ in our country. Number one is self-pity and anger. When trials do come, we can either see them as identification with Christ and rejoice in those things, or we can chafe at them and become angry. And Christians do this. We begin to ask, well, why me? Or we become assertive. I don't deserve this. We have forgotten the word of Christ through His apostle. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Now the way out that Christ provides may not always be the cessation of the trial. The way out might become simply the grace of God to endure the trial. And to endure it for His name's sake. And with this promise, all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Matthew 10, verse 24. Do we understand that about the trials? They're the pathway to glory. But you don't just go from, oh, I'm a believer, glory. Now we're living in a cursed world where people hate God, hate Christ, and because of your identification to Christ, they hate you too. They may tolerate you, but as the gospel begins to wane, as it is in our country, the darkness begins to get more and more bold, more and more encompassing. We're not seeing this on Wall Street and Wall Street protesters. Are they law-abiding or lawless? towards lawlessness, takeover of common decencies. Women have been raped in that park there. They found a dead person, so someone was killed in that park there. Marijuana, illegal use of drugs, a whole lot of other crimes going on. Lawlessness, where there's no godly law. The second hindrance to experiencing the fellowship of suffering with Christ is that sometimes we suffer for disobedience to Christ. Peter tells us to answer men's questions with gentleness and respect, but if we are argumentative or abrasive, the rejection we suffer is of our own doing. We mishandle the gospel and pay the consequences for doing it. Was it the offense of the cross that brought about a strong reaction to your testimony? Or was it the way you said things and your lack of love in saying them? Wow. 
If you've earned your suffering through disobedience, I'll just call it sin. If you've earned your suffering through sin, then there will be no joy in it. You can forget that. It is only when our suffering is for Christ and because of Christ that we experience the fellowship in suffering with Him. But if you suffer as an evildoer, as a lawbreaker, you deserve it. That's it. You shouldn't have any complaints. But you're not having any joy in it either. The joy comes in saying, Wow, they said that to me. They did that to me. Because I'm a Christian. Because I stood up for Christ in the gospel. There's a price to be a Christian. Even in free America. Now secondly, let's look into how we might enter into the suffering of fellow believers. It starts with suffering and identification with Christ. He's the head, we're the body. But we got other, a lot of other people in the body, a lot of other parts. Firstly, understand that those who attack the church attack Christ. This we learn from Christ Himself when He confronted Paul, asking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But it is also from the spiritual analogy that the church is the body of which Christ is the head. So you attack the body, you're attacking Christ. This is why Jesus takes it personally every time one of His disciples is persecuted for His name. Judgment Day is coming and, not, and one of the aspects of judgment is this. Paul writes, God is just. Alright, here it is. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And He will give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified. How? Glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 through 10. He is saying there is a glory day coming for the people of God, and part of that glory will be their vindication for obeying Christ and the gospel. But what is glory for you as a believer will be retribution and payback for those who have made your life miserable because of your fidelity to Christ. When people touch God's people in a harmful way, it is as God spoke through Zechariah the prophet saying, Come, O Zion, escape you who live, now notice the, where they're living, you who live in the daughter of Babylon. That's just another way of saying, you that live in the world. Babylon stands for the world and all of its ugliness. And so the prophet is saying, Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After He has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. 
I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout, be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. Zechariah 2, verse 7 and following. You know what he's saying here through the prophet? I've watched you, Babylon, and I've watched how you've treated my people, the apple of my eye, and you have aroused my anger, and I'm coming with my Christ, with my anointed one, and your slaves will make you slaves. Payday is coming. You know, there's something very self-deceiving in God's delay of judgment. Even as I'm speaking this morning, people are sitting there saying, well, <laughs> yeah, he's a preacher of judgment. Judgment, judgment. We haven't seen it yet. It hasn't come now. And so people begin to feel pretty self-confident, pretty sure that no judgment day is coming, pretty sure that they've escaped all of that, or that this is just so much heated rhetoric to get people stirred up. Listen to Solomon. He tells us about the danger of self-deception. Here's what he writes. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a very long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet, because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. He's talking about the shadow on a sundial. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11, 13. What's the deception? He says the deception is this. Because God doesn't, wham, smack you dead. Right now, because of your sin, because of your evil deeds, then people say, it ain't going to happen. It's not coming. God has not seen it. And they go through all this kind of self-justification. And he says, they even commit a hundred crimes and they get away with it. Nothing happens. See, God doesn't know. He doesn't see. He's not going to do anything. And it lulls people to sleep, thinking God doesn't care. Satan would convince you that out of sight is out of mind. Well, that may apply to us as human beings, but nothing is out of God's sight. Let me read it for you. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4, verse 13. So make no mistake about it. Delay in judgment does not mean God has forgotten about your sin. 
There's only one eraser for God's memory bank that causes him to deal kindly with sinners. And 1 John 1 verse 7 tells us what it is. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. We sing it in our hymn. We sang it this morning. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are your sins under the blood of Jesus? God's forgiveness and therefore His fellowship with sinners is inseparably linked to the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And apart from that cleanser, none of your sins are erased. Not now, not ever. God will remember. He will remember. In the news this week, they've reopened or are reopening the case of Natalie Wood's death. It happened 30 years ago, out on a boat, married to Wagner. And all the commentators are saying, well, what do they expect to prove? You know, if it was an accidental death, even if it was secondary homicide, the statute of limitations is over on that. The only thing that would ever allow the case to be brought up again with any kind of teeth in the indictment would be a charge of murder because everything else, the statute of limitations, would rule it out. Well, let me say as kindly as I can, there is no statute of limitation on offending God. Every sin, listen to me, every sin is a capital offense. The soul that sins shall die. Read it in the Revelation. All liars along with the adulterers and murderers, all liars end up in the lake of fire. Are you a liar? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever had an immoral thought? Have you ever been covetous? We've been talking about that in the uh, adult class. Every sin is a capital offense and God remembers it all. Unless and until your sin is covered, cleansed, erased by the blood of Christ. Secondly, let us learn that our Christian relationship partners us with suffering saints. Our Christian relationship partners us with suffering saints. Let me ask this question. Do we have to be the actual recipients of persecution 
in order to experience the fellowship of suffering. We read from the Hebrews text this morning. Let me read it again. Sometimes, he says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. He goes on. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Hebrews 10, verse 33 and following. You see what he's saying? Some of them, as Christians, they, were the, they, were the, they bore the bunt of the persecution. They were the ones that were arrested. They were the ones that were thrown into prison. They were the ones that had their loved ones perhaps tortured or whatever. They lost their freedom. But there's another group. They weren't personally experiencing those things, but they lost some things too. They lost their possessions because they sympathized. They stood alongside of those that were undergoing that severe persecution. And so clearly the writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, there will be times when the hand of persecution touches you personally and directly, but there will be other times when it touches your friends and your fellow brothers in the faith. When the latter happens, you will have to make a choice. You can either man up, as the expression goes, and throw your hat into the arena with your fellow saints, or, or you can try to blend into the woodwork so no one will be able to detect that you are a Christian too. I'm reading a biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who refused to knuckle under to Hitler's takeover of the church during Nazi Germany. By the way, it's on the bestseller list. You ought to get it. But what was astonishing to Bonhoeffer was the vast majority of pastors and churches in Germany which capitulated to the Nazi regime in the extermination of the Jews and others. Instead of standing on the side of God's people and the gospel. They threw away their salvation for a bit of temporal peace and tranquility. They refuse to fellowship in suffering with Christ and with His people. And it eventually cost Bonhoeffer his own life while the church of Germany went merrily 
on. And a few years back, we had some <coughs> exchange students from Germany here at our church. They stayed with us a year. As we questioned them about Christianity and the church in Germany, and guess what? It's not there. You say, well, is there, is there no church? Oh, yeah, there's some churches, but it's, they're rare. Rare. I know, I went on an internet, internet search trying to find gospel-preaching churches for these two exchange students. I found one church in Berlin. There probably are more, but I found one. Another one in another part of Germany. They rejected Christ. They rejected the gospel. They refused to stand with the people of God. Brethren, let us not be guilty of this. Fellowship will at times involve blood, sweat, and tears. And the writer of Hebrew warns, But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who believe and are saved. Hebrews 10, verse 38 and 39. Well, which stripe runs down your spine? A yellow stripe, or is it the stripe of boldness for Christ? We are to love the brethren deeply because we are all part of the body of Christ. And it is as Paul told the Ephesians, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Yeah, Ephesians 5.29. And the body of Christ is that man or that woman sitting next to you who is a believer. And John says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not the child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And anyone who does not love remains, remains in death. 1 John 3, 10 through 14. And then in verse 16 of that same chapter, chapter in case we're in a doubt as to what he means by loving the brethren, he defines love saying this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There is no fellowship in suffering if the fellowship so-called falls short of this. Christ is watching. Jesus is analyzing. May we be found faithful. What about the world's brand of love? Well, Paul writes on that, and here's what he says. Very rarely, he says, will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. That's the world's definition of love. But, he goes on, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 7 and 8. Soldiers will throw themselves on a grenade to save a body that they consider to be a good man, worthy of their sacrifice, but God's brand of love was to sacrifice his sinless son for wicked and sinful people who were his enemies. Will you not come to the cross today? Will you not confess your sins today and trust Jesus alone for forgiveness and cleansing? You have today. You may not have tomorrow. You may not even have your next breath. And that's why Paul says today, today, if you hear his voice, don't, don't harden your heart like Israel did of old. They heard God's call. And they said, we're not listening. We're not going to heed. We're not going to obey. We like Egypt too much. Egypt is our kind of place. People love their sin. And they know that coming to Christ will mean repentance, turning away from sin. They love the pleasures of evil. And they know that coming to Christ will mean they have to forsake those things begin to live a life of righteousness and holiness that will please God. And so they said, gospel call or not, I'm not coming. Then you will perish in your sin. Lord, move in our hearts today. Oh boy, are we stubborn. We love our sin. I pray that you will draw those that are entrenched, and that's what it is. They are entrenched, Jesus says, a slave of sin. They think they're free. They think they can do whenever they want. They can come to Christ whenever they want. They think repentance is of their doing, that faith is of their doing. They can believe in what they want. But the Scripture teaches that both repentance and faith are the gift of God. And they must come to God and ask for those very things to turn their hearts. They can't turn their hearts because their hearts are locked into their nature and their nature is ungodly and sinful. Can anybody live outside of their nature? Can they go against what they are? No. And so God has to change them from within. And I pray that someone here this morning Today, when they hear God saying, that's you, that's you, that's you, that they will not be balking at the word of God or the call of God, but will come. And then for us who are believers, I pray that you will help us in this whole charge of fellowship in one another's suffering. May we not dismiss it. We, may we not say, oh, well, that's their problem. May we say instead, that's our problem. May we identify with them. If we're not the one that's personally going through it, 
we can at least stand alongside those and sympathize with them. And there will, there will be lumps to take for doing that. But let us at least do that. We're going to want it someday when the Gestapo comes knocking on our door. I pray that you'll help us. Lord, let us love not only in word but in deed. Let us love, as John says, that it's a badge. It's the in, in indicator that we love, really love Christ and know him, that we're going to love the brethren. We're not going to take Satan's suggestion and desert them because of selfish preservation. Forgive those churches in America or in Germany rather that oh Lord where's, where's their country now? It's like France, it's like England. No church, hardly any church, hardly any gospel. Society's completely sold out to secularism. Lord being the light of the gospel, once again, we pray because you are a merciful God. And Lord, the torch is flickering even in our own land. I pray that you'll not let it be extinguished, but rally our own hearts, make us emboldened all the more to speak on behalf of the gospel of Christ. For we seek these things, firstly, for your own glory and the extension of your kingdom, but secondly, for our own good, for the prosperity of our friends and family, and the people that surround our neighborhoods who are lost, lost, lost. They haven't found forgiveness because they haven't found Christ. May you extend your kingdom to whom you will this day for your glory. Amen.